Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. And the last podcast that we did was with Seth Miller, who is the executive director of the Innocence Project of Florida. And if you're tuning in now, I would strongly suggest that you go back and listen to Seth's part one interview, uh, because this is really part two, and you'll have some background on a particular case that we're talking about that the Innocence Project of Florida became very involved with, and it's the case of Dean McKee. So we talked about the uh, project itself, the work that um, the project does in helping people who are innocent um, overturn their cases, if possible. And now uh, what I would like to do is welcome Seth back. Um, Welcome, Seth. Good to have you with us again. And uh, we will be um, talking about Dean McKee's case. So what we we were talking about before, if you can kind of maybe do a very quick overview of the case for listeners to um, bring them up to speed, that would be great. Sure. So uh, Dean McKee was convicted of a 1987 Tampa murder um, that uh, was a stabbing of a, of, a, of a black man who was a vagrant at the ta- outside the Tampa Museum in the middle of the night. And um, we always sort of had the sense when we st- after we had fully reviewed the case that something was amiss. Um, you know, Dean was uh, maintaining his innocence and saying that his brother actually committed this crime, but had framed him in order to um, uh, make sure that he, his brother, did not get a death penalty because he was over 18. And he thought that his younger brother, Dean, who was 16, would get off lightly. And in fact, Dean got a life sentence um, as a juvenile. Uh, for uh, his conviction in that crime. And so um, when we interacted first with Dean's case, uh, we did we did so because he had already initiated a, a procedure to get DNA testing on fingernail scrapings that were taken from this uh, poor man who was uh, stabbed um, because, you know, naturally they collect that evidence because it could tell you who, who did and who did not deposit uh, their DNA underneath the fingernails. Um, during that kind of violent act. And so um, Dean was already in the middle of this when we got involved. And in fact, uh, the court was um, sort of um, not doing it correctly. And in fact, um, didn't finish um, the DNA testing in order to compare Dean's DNA to the DNA found underneath the victim's fingernails. And what we we found when we got involved and um, were able to get D- Dean's DNA profile is that there was DNA underneath the fingernails that was foreign to the victim that did not match Dean McKee that was suggestive of the fact that this crime did not happen as Dean's older brother said it happened. And in fact, it supported, um, you know, our theory that um, Dean's older brother was the one who actually committed this crime that actually, you know, stabbed, stabbed the victim. The victim likely scratched um, his older brother when he committed the crime and um, and this was now a new piece of evidence that could get us back in the court and allow us to fully reinvestigate the case and bring any evidence that supported Dean's innocence to bear in the new legal proceeding. Now, in in the early, well, I should say the late 80s, um, tell us what the story was with DNA testing. Where was it at that time? 
in 19, December 1987, when this crime happened, there was no forensic DNA testing right. that was, you know, available, at, you know, for criminal investigative purposes. It, it didn't come into first use in Florida until the following year, and it wasn't in use at the time of this trial. And so, um, you know, luckily for us, they collected this uh, this this evidence, um, and then luckily for us and luckily for Dean, they kept it all of those years because we didn't even get involved in the case until um, uh, really you know, 22 years after he had been convicted. And so um, every one of these cases, it's a, it's a minor miracle that some you know, crime lab or police agency or clerk of court has kept evidence on some shelf in a paper or plastic bag for one, two, three, or even four decades um, where we can still use the modern science today in order to um, to you know, completely put the piece, pieces of the puzzle together and unlock the truth. Um, that is, in some of these cases, really the miracle, not the, the result, but the fact that the evidence right. exists in the first place. That it's been kept. And um, so often uh, I read about cases similar to this, and it is so shocking to me that after decades, not just years, but decades, that evidence is kept. Is there a standard uh, time frame where states can say, well, we're tossing this evidence out, we don't need it anymore, this man has been convicted and he's in prison? How does that work? Well, you know, in a lot of places don't have any standard um, you know, procedures or rules that govern evidence preservation in Florida. We do now have such a thing for evidence that might contain DNA. We've had it since 2001, where we have mandatory preservation through the, per, the end of the person's sentence, and if they're on death row until uh, 90 days after their execution. Um, but that didn't come into place until, hmm. until 2001. So up until that point, uh, uh, evidence-holding agencies were free to create normal, to create routine retention schedules that allowed for um, the destruction of evidence routinely pursuant to those retention schedules. And so in about 40% of the cases where we you know, would like to do DNA testing, uh, um, you know, the evidence just doesn't exist because it was destroyed, you know, in the 80s or 90s or um, uh, in some cases it was destroyed even later, uh, uh, contrary to what the law was. And so, and, and you, know, that's a, you know, yes, if the law was in place to preserve and they violated the law, that's a bad thing, but that doesn't help us right. to, to do the DNA testing if the evidence doesn't exist. You need evidence to exist to do the testing. Now, what if, in his case, the evidence had been destroyed? What would have happened? What would have been the outcome? Well, it's interesting you ask because, you know, some of the other evidence that was really key in the case, and so the, the DNA testing got us in the door, but I think the evidence that helped us win the case and overturn his conviction was actually something that had nothing to do with DNA. And, and so um, Dean's older brother, Scott, over time, you know, had girlfriends and, you know, married um, a woman. And, you know, so he only went to prison for a year and then got out. Um, and, you know, lived a life and he had relationships. And over those times, he told a lot of the women that he was with um, mm. things that suggested or, or affirmatively stated that he framed his younger brother uh, for, uh, for a murder that he actually committed. And so, you know, we were able to do that investigation and get those statements from those individuals 
Um, and, and so that was certainly really important evidence. But the problem was is that I think if that's all we had, we might not have been able to get back into court um, because of the really restrictive procedural rules about what qualifies as new evidence. Um, mm. I think a court would have said, look, yes, this is interesting evidence and maybe even um, ex you know, exculpatory evidence, but it's stuff you should have found earlier. So we're not now, to, you know, more than two decades after um, the, the person has been convicted, we're not now going to allow you to reopen the case based on something that could have been found earlier. Now, with the DNA, we did not have that problem because um, once you get a DNA result, the law in Florida automatically treats that as newly discovered evidence that, re that allows you to reopen your case. And so, so I would say that while the DNA testing results might not have been what won the case, um, ultimately, factually, it was, in fact, what allowed us to go win the case. And, mm -hmm. um, and um, I think Dean would still be in prison today um, or, or, you know, maybe just getting out on parole if, um, you know, as a convicted murderer, if, um, if we didn't have that DNA evidence. Right. Now, you said um, that the Innocence Project stepped in, um, did you say about 2010? Is that accurate? We, we started communicating with Dean in 2010, and um, I, I, re I recall vividly the first um, court appearance I made on his behalf was in March 2011. Oh, okay. And, and then um, years go by because he did not get out officially until er very early this year in January. Is that correct? We actually got out. He got out. Um, so I I'll maybe rewind and give you precisely okay. what happened. So sure. you know, we we came into his case officially in court in 2011. We got his case on track, got those DNA test results. And in 2013, we filed a motion based on all this new evidence that we had. We had an evidentiary hearing in 2014 and 2015. And um, and then in 2000, uh, uh, December 2017, a judge finally overturned his conviction, which, um, which, you know, we thought was going to end the case right there, but the state decided that they didn't like that result. And instead they mm. appealed the grant of a new trial. And, and so once they did that, we felt like, look, you know, he deserves to be able to get out on bond um, because, you know, he would, be entitled to bond had we just gone to a new trial phase and they might even drop the charges. But the only reason he's still locked up is because the state appealed a decision. Um, they're not going to win the appeal and it might take a year. Um, and, it, and the state attorney agreed to a bond. And so in January, 2018, he got out on bond, um, you know, of course, with a monitor around his ankle, right. severe restrictions on his movement, curfews, um, a lot of stress that he would, you know, for something small, that had nothing to you know that was only technical that he would get sent back to jail or prison. Um, but um, after the state finally dropped that appeal, they gave it up. Um, in January 2019, they finally dropped the charges, which led to which paved the way for its exoneration. Right, right. But look how long it took. And I think mm -hmm. what I'd like uh, listeners to understand is every case is very, very different. Um, some are solved or are overturned quickly. But why does it take 
so many years from the beginning as you stepped into the case, even though he had done some work on his own until uh, he is declared uh, a free person and can walk away uh, as a free man. Why does it take so long? Well, I think there's a number of spots where things can get delayed. Now, of course, you know, after we got the DNA test results, um, we don't run straight into court and go file because we want to fully reinvestigate the case to see what else we can find so that when we do go to court, we put our best foot forward. So we took over a year to do that investigation, went to multiple, went to see witnesses in multiple states and put together, you know, a factual record that in addition to the DNA testing fully supported innocence. So, you know, we, we, you know, we'll, we'll, We'll take the hit for taking that time, but it was time well spent because we uncovered the evidence that really led to his exoneration. But once you put a case into the court, so in this case in 2013, um, you know, sometimes the state will agree to relief and it happens all very quickly. But when they oppose, which they did in this case, um, and you have to fully litigate a case, um, it can just take months and years to do. And then, you know, in this case, we, we had a wonderful judge, but she just took a long time to make a decision, almost two years to make a decision. It was, you know, obviously she overturned the conviction and wrote a wonderful order, and that was really important to us. Um, but it did take a long time, and, and, and it was a lot of agony and, and agonizing um, on Dean's part and his family's part and our part. Um, but, that's, you know, that, that is the, – the, the, the machine of justice is slow. And, um, and never, ne- you know, never quick enough for our liking. And, you know, some of our clients, they, they, you know, their mothers die. They're, you know, yeah. they, they lose relationships. They, um, they get sick themselves and, you know, and, and, and have debilitating illnesses where they could get better health care if, if, if the system moved more quickly to get them out. And so, um, you know, I think the overarching principle is that the system is not designed to free an innocent person. It's designed to preserve a conviction, regardless right. of whether it's a wrongful conviction. And um, it, when push comes to shove, it, t- it really takes us moving mountains to get someone out. We don't get, we don't succeed because of the system. We it, it succeed in spite of mm-hmm. a system that is hell bent on keeping our clients in prison. Right. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, is almost, you've almost answered it, is that uh, sense of frustration that you must feel with not just Dean's case, but so many. And I know that uh, the Innocence Project of Florida is usually working on over 30 cases simultaneously. But what, what's the greatest sense of frustration as you work on a case uh, with the justice system? For you, I think it. I think that I think it's really two things. It's the thing we talked about, which is, um, you know, the, the 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 delays, the slowness, the 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 apparent lack of care among the actors that are operating this criminal justice or criminal legal system um, for the people who are the subjects of it, that they're actually human beings. That just like. You know, the judge, just like the prosecutor, just like the police officer, the person who's been convicted has family, they have feelings, they are human being too. Um, and, and that when we have evidence of innocence, we need to, you know, move at, at due haste, with due haste in order to 
right, that wrongful conviction. But I'll tell you the thing that is the greatest frustration is when I know that I have a case of someone who's innocent and I know that I should win and we don't win, we mm. don't succeed for them. And they ask me, you know, Seth, when I, when I tell them that we, we can't work on their case anymore and they ask me, Seth, does this mean I'm going to die in prison? Mm. And, and I have to you know, say to them, I don't know what it means, but all I can tell you is that today at this point in time, um, we've failed, we've failed you and we have not been able to succeed for you. And, you know, it's going to have to be someone else if, if this is going to, you know, if this is going to work. And so, and that's gut wrench. It's just gut wrenching. It's the worst part of the job. And I would think those, I those, would. those things stick with you. But on the flip side, you know, when we exonerate someone, you know, it, it, it keeps you motivated and buoyed um, for, for years, knowing that, you know, you've really given a person a new life, a new chance to experience life and all it has to offer um, to, to, you know, start a new family, to make really normal, you know, positive relationships with people in, in a safe space that's not violent like prison. And so, um, you know, realize your dreams. And so, um, you know, every job has advantages and disadvantages, and this is no different. And that's one of them, right. Now, in Dean's case, um, it's when I say it, I, I still find it very hard to wrap my head around it. He was only 16 when he was um, accused of this crime. And 30 years went by while he remained in prison. Um, it, it's a lifetime. Um, and I am sure he will tell us about the changes that he experienced uh, from being a teenager all the way to, you know, uh, where he is right now in his uh, late 40s. But um, I, I wanted to ask you about something that, to me, makes this case so unique, and that is the fact that Dean was a committed neo-Nazi or a skinhead, however you want to uh, um, describe him. And for, for you, um, there was kind of a special... Uh, significance to uh, what he had believed. He certainly doesn't anymore. But um, tell us a little bit about um, your your connection to uh, his his belief system when he was uh, a teenager. So let me first say that you know I think one of the roles of someone who's a criminal defense attorney is to kind of take your clients the way they are. I'm certainly you know. The rights that they're afforded um, under law, under the Constitution, don't delineate um, based on political ideologies or or whether they're racist or anti-racist. And so, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I like to think that if someone was a victim of a miscarriage of justice, whether they were a skinhead or or someone who was anti-racist, that I would represent them all the same um, uh, because injustice it needs to be cured no matter who is the victim of it. And so that, that being said, you know, I'm the I'm a grandchild of three Holocaust survivors, two of whom were in you know concentration camps. And I grew up um, where all my grandparents' friends were Holocaust survivors. And, and it's just sort of in my, you know, it's like my genetic inherited trauma, um, you know, of, of being a first-generation American 
My mother was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany. I'm a first generation American with all these people around me who have, were, you know, them and their families were the victims of, uh, you know, mass wrongful incarceration and for their family members who didn't survive genocide. And so, you know, to have a, a client that is neo-Nazi is, is, was, was an interesting twist mm-hmm. you know, on all of this. Um, but, you know, I'll tell you that I didn't know when I first went to meet him, you know, what he was you know, oh. more than 20 years down the line. And um, it took getting to know, you know, meeting him and getting to know him to only find out after I already agreed to represent him <laughs> that he was a disavowed um, neo-Nazism. Uh, uh, within the first, you know, five or six years of him being locked up, uh, mainly because, you know, he was now put in a, in a position where he's in a prison with all different people. And, you know, as a young kid, he sought refuge with, um, the white supremacists, um, in prison for safety, um, until the white supremacists also beat him up and, and, and assaulted him. And he realized that, you know, his, action like these people didn't care about him the family he thought he had based on his race was not a family at all and in fact you know his actions his ascribing to that ideology um not only hurt him him, other people but it hurt him um Mm -hmm. and it just there's more to the world than um you know skin color is important for people it it, it indicates culture a lot of people indicates culture it indicates um you know historical trauma that they've they've received it's part of them um but um you there's a lot to learn from each other's differences uh and i think prison allowed him to to learn that fact that you need to not ascribe um generalities or stereotypes to groups of people and actually learn about individual people for who they are um and you know create mutual respect um between all the people you interact with and that was a lesson he learned in prison he realized look i gotta i gotta step away from this and I got to do it, particularly if I am to get out of this, you know, and, and I need to not focus on the negative and be hyper focused on getting myself out of this predicament, out of my wrongful incarceration. And only when he turned away from that and, you know, led a more productive, positive life was he able to put himself on the path to, um, you know, taking part in writing his own miscarriage of justice. You, how much contact over, uh, the years that you were representing him, did you have with Dean, and did you ever talk about what you just shared with us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I mean, we would talk. Um, you know, certain times we talk once a month, sometimes less, depending what was going on in the case. Certainly, as we were, you know, getting, you know, after we overturned his conviction, we were talking every week. Um, I was seeing him more often in, in the county jail when he got transferred there ahead of his release um, nice. after he after he got out in the year when he was out on bond before he's exonerated. We were talking almost every day. And so um, we've had a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. Well, I won't detail them on, on this podcast. I mean, um, you know, it's it's like an interest like all of it is it's, it's like how interesting and unique life is that, you know, here, you know, Dean McKee, the, you know, the, the former white supremacist has a Jewish lawyer and a, <laughs> and a black, a, a black parole specialist who are the people who are, you know, his, his two key advocates to get him out of prison. And, you know, it's just, um, it's a, it's a story about not, um, settling 
for what people are in their worst moments and instead really looking at what people can be um, if, if they're just, um, you know, shown love and compassion and, and, and respect and I'm given a second chance. And so um, I'm, I'm proud to call Dean my former client and a friend and, and he's a really good person and, you know, somebody who I would have never had a chance to meet if I just assumed that he was irredeemable. That's right. That's right. Well, that is a wonderful story. Uh, you've really given us some great um, information about the case. It's going to be fascinating to have Dean on the next two podcasts. And I do appreciate all the time that you gave us today because I know your time is very precious. Thank you so much, uh, Seth. It was great to have you on. Um, I just wanted to close by uh, giving people um, a new email address just for the podcast. I'd love to hear uh, any thoughts or um, ideas or comments about what we've already covered. And the address is pursuing.justice5 at gmail.com. Pursuing.justice5 at gmail.com. Thank you again, Seth, for being with us uh, today and for the last podcast as well. Really um, wonderful to talk with you about this case. Thank you, Harriet.